Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Today on Talking Biotech, we'll talk about wheat, and we'll talk about wheat allergies, and we'll talk about how to solve wheat allergies using modern molecular biology and modern techniques, and we really take ourselves into an area we haven't been in a while on the podcast, and that'll be talking about gene editing in a way that we can use gene editing to solve problems to, in this case, help people who suffer from this particular disorder. And uh, to help me with this, um, I have with me Kevin Klatt. And Kevin uh, is a graduate student in in molecular nutrition at Cornell University. Um, He's currently uh, undergoing. So, Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Yeah, I'll let you explain. So where are you in your your degree program? Sure. So I'm in my second year of the PhD program here. Um, I mostly work in maternal and child, uh, maternal and fetal nutrition, uh, looking at a number of different nutrients involved in one carbon metabolism and uh, lipid metabolism in oh. the context of sort of cell culture and animal models. Oh, very cool. So, so fetal nutrition, how, how big, it seemed like the biggest problem is, you know, getting food to a fetus. Like, how do you, you know, get to the, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to know. <laughs> Exactly what I study is the placenta, which its entire job is getting food from mom to the fetus. So I know a little bit about that. Okay, so this isn't uh, you know a syringe through the body wall full of jello or anything like that. We, we haven't gotten there yet. No. Okay. Well, maybe okay. in our lifetimes. Um, uh, so what what I wanted to uh, ask have you on for is a couple reasons. Well, first I know that you've been active in science communication and at least um, in trying to learn more about about doing this. I met you at the um, we've you know I've known you for a while from online, but met you at Cornell at the Alliance for Science event last year. But w- can you tell me about your interests in that particular area? Sure. So um, I kind of got involved in the whole biotechnology um, and plants and the GMO debate, if you will, 
um, back, I guess it was about a year and a half ago, I had written a blog post for the American Society for Nutrition, just kind of questioning why no nutrition organization really took a stance on biotechnology. You have all of these other health organizations that have kind of helped or tried to help uh, dispel some of the myths that are out there about GMOs. But the nutrition community has kind of oddly sat silent. Your major nutrition organizations don't have a position statement or just don't really provide any guidance for the public at all. So I wrote a post about that kind of questioning, hey, why aren't we here guiding this conversation? Because as I'm sure we'll talk about later, there's a lot of potential for genetic engineering to better our food and to make it healthier for specific populations. And that's a really good point. I know that I, I have a, I'm relatively uh, frequently asked by dietitians to uh, speak at their conferences. And I'm actually speaking at one uh, this uh, summer, a major one here in Florida, and I've been uh, inquired about the uh, national ones about uh, about speaking because these are the folks in diet in the dietitians and people providing uh, nutrition advice they're the ones who really are on the public interface much more than I am as a scientist and uh, they're the ones who have lots of questions and they're really good they re- and for the most part I mean there's a few folks who are out there but in general very good and and want to know how do they talk to concerned uh, people about their food yeah they definitely need a a bit of guidance too because i've taken all the dietetics coursework and plan to do the dietetic internship and become an rd at some point in my time here at cornell Um, but there in the dietetics coursework there's very little molecular training to really be able to understand a lot of the concepts behind genetic engineering especially as they get more and more advanced with things like crispr Mm-hmm. And that's what we'll talk about today with uh, our guest, Chris Miller, who we'll talk to in just a moment. But we're going to uh, talk about this issue of uh, sensitivity to wheat allergens. And uh, it really has been something that's become more and more prevalent. You see it on the grocery store shelves. You see it uh, where everything from uh, bologna to beer to salt is labeled as gluten-free. And it seems to be a little bit of marketing. It seems to be a little bit of maybe uh, cautious labeling for those who have these afflictions or these disorders or sensitivities, I should say. Um, but could you tell me a little bit about what this really is? What is, what is this uh, wheat sensitivity and maybe why is it becoming more and more prevalent? Sure. So I think it's important to note that there is celiac disease, which is an actual autoimmune disorder that's an allergy to a protein in wheat, an allergy to gluten. Um, But then there's also this other subsect of individuals that identify as gluten insensitive or that they have some sensitivity to wheat. Um, And there's a lot of kind of confusion in the scientific literature really isn't strongly settled on whether this exists, whether it's truly a reaction to gluten or something else in the food. But this sort of gluten sensitivity has sparked this um, you know, prevalence of gluten-free labeled things in the food store. And uh, it's kind of become a little bit of a fad diet, but it does seem like from the literature that's out there that there is something to it, and some people are sensitive to wheat for some reason, um, whether it's the gluten or some other component of it. But I, there's not really a strong way to medically diagnose that yet, whereas with celiac disease, that's something that has been on the rise uh, over the past few decades there are a lot more people diagnosed with it now than used to be diagnosed with it back in the 1950s and 60s. And that's a true 
um, the body is responding and mounting an immune response when gluten is ingested. And that's different from something like Crohn's disease, right? I, I think that's autoimmune as well. Yeah, there's some actually underlying some of the genome-wide association studies have found that some of the variants that are associated with uh, Crohn's are also or with uh, celiacs are also associated with some of these other autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. And are there any uh, hints as to why the increase in prevalence is? It's something because you see, you hear everything from, well, it's the GMO wheat, or it's the uh, way the wheat is is bred, or you know, there's a number of hypotheses out there. What what do you hear from uh, the nutrition side? Well, there's no evidence that it's from GMO wheat because there's not GMO wheat for consumption. there and I don't think there's evidence either for it being from modern wheat, as some people like to call it, because individuals with celiacs still need to avoid some of these ancient grains. A lot of the theory behind why the prevalence is so much higher is related to the hygiene hypothesis, which is sort of your exposure to bacteria and other kind of bugs early in life might program the immune system. And so there's a lot of interest in not only looking at the genetics of celiacs and who's susceptible, but also to the microbiome and sort of this interaction between the bugs in your gut, the diet, and then um, your genetics. And also with diet, there's some interest in the timing of introduction of these proteins that might uh, be antigenic. So and there's been a lot of talk of peanuts, at least lately in the literature, where the, the timing of peanut introduction can affect whether you uh, develop an allergy or not. And there's some thought that might play a role with gluten. The literature is not really solid on all of this yet. Yeah, well, they're tough experiments to do because you're purely looking at retrospective studies. Like, did, you know, how much, you know, how much uh, wheat exposure did you have as a child? And, you know, my mom, you know, I mean, I was eating, I pretty much ate everything from early on. Um, I don't have a three-second rule. I play by, like, the three-minute rule. Um, I've always, you know, played in the mud and p- had pets and everything else. And I'm kind of bulletproof with respect to allergies and I never get sick. And I think, uh, the people who I know who've, uh, you know, and this is all just anecdotal, but you know, the folks who I know who, um, you know, their, their kid falls down and they, you know, w- wash them first and then cover them in Purell and then laminate them. You know, those kids grow up and have, you know, allergies and asthma and everything else. So maybe something to this hygiene hypothesis. Yeah, for sure. Although it's it's still, there's a lot of ecological data that had originally suggested that the timing of gluten introduction might matter. And then there's been even more confusion because the, I think it's the European Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology and Nutrition came out with a statement last year saying that the timing doesn't matter and breastfeeding isn't protective. So all of these hypotheses that we had originally thought were pretty well settled are constantly under re-review. So well, uh, the factors that are going to be implicated in the development of celiacs are just, we need a lot more studies. For people who do have gluten allergies or the celiacs, what are the current treatments that are available? So as of right now, the only treatment for celiac disease is just nutrition therapy that consists of a gluten-free diet. So that entails avoiding wheat, rye, barley, malt. And there's some controversy over whether you need to avoid oats or not. It seems like there's a subsect of individuals with celiacs who might also be sensitive to oats. But it's a pretty strict diet. And uh the idea that, that people might not have to avoid these foods is a pretty promising uh, potential. 
Yeah, I think it, it would be really difficult. I have some friends who are legitimate um, celiacs or legitimate gluten sensitivity uh, uh, sufferers. And, uh, you know, they're uh, always, you know, if you can't have pizza unless it's uh, gluten-free crust. I think for some people you'd mention that it's kind of a fad and maybe there's something to it there. But for these folks, it's something that is such a pain to have to deal with that there's no way that they would do it by choice. Yeah, it does not sound like a fun lifestyle. I'm quite glad I am very gluten tolerant. So the person who can answer our questions about how to maybe fix wheat um, might be Dr. Chris Miller. And Dr. Chris Miller, he's the Director of Wheat Quality Research at the Kansas Wheat Innovation Center uh, at the Heartland Plant Innovations in Manhattan, Kansas. So welcome to the podcast, uh, Chris. Happy to be here. Yeah, it was really nice to meet you there last, whenever I was there. And uh, I, w- I was so excited and was hoping I could get you on the podcast sometime. So, uh, you know, thank you very much for joining me. So what, what, is, uh, what are some of the things that people work on there at, uh, at the Wheat Innovation Center? Yeah, so we have a number of things going on in the building, but <clears throat> for the most part, the Wheat Innovation Center um, is focused on advancing wheat. Um, and so the company I work for, Heartland Plant Innovations, we have a product uh, called the Doubled Haploid. It's a, it's a service for wheat breeders, public and private, um, all around the world. So we have about 20 breeders that, that buy our double haploid lines, and that helps them speed the process of, of sending you know, wheat varieties to the, to the market. My project specifically, is, um, as we're talking about today, uh, related to celiac disease and uh, really trying to identify the wheat uh, um, origins of celiac disease and then uh, with the long-term hope of reducing reactivity of wheat um, uh, for, for everybody, really. So if we go back to the beginning, what are these things called glutens? What, what, what is that really in terms of genes and you know, kind of the technical nomenclature? Gluten um, is not really a technical term necessarily, but um, gluten is what happens when you mix water with wheat flour. So when you form a dough ball, that kind of viscous mass um, that you form is gluten, and that's a it's the storage proteins of wheat um, that they basically come entangled and they're connected in, in long webs and it, it basically makes dough. Um, if you look at it scientifically, what they are, um, you're, you're looking at a couple hundred, maybe more um, storage proteins. They're all very similar, but different in some ways um, that actually come together. So gluten is not one thing. It's not a single protein. Um, or a single component of wheat flour, but it's uh, kind of a, a hodgepodge. It's everything. It's all of the proteins together that come together and bind to form this uh, dough. So when you're talking about solving the problem of reactive wheat, is that something that you can do by traditional breeding? Yeah, we, we think so. Um, I mean, our building, um, as you know, wheat as a, as a species or a crop uh, commodity is non-GMO. So there's no GMO technology being used in commercial wheat. Um, so everything we do in our building is strictly non-GMO because of um, our service to the, to the actual industry. So we can't, we can't introduce any GMOs out into the, uh, out into the wild. But, um, so everything we're doing right now is mostly based off of, you know, sequencing, doing gene sequencing and proteomics 
Now, when you actually get to a solution of a, of a celiac safe or a low reactivity wheat, um, we believe we can identify lines that exist today with low reactivity um, and then use a traditional approach to, um, to lower that reactivity. It's going to take a long time. So using the traditional method, we're looking at, at 10, you know, 10, 15 years maybe before we were able to have something with a, with a significantly lowered reactivity. If we could use uh, technology, you know, uh, GMO technology or biotechnology, um, we could speed that process um, greatly. So I, I was just thinking with the traditional breeding, what are the effects on the wheat protein that uh, come about from all this kind of back crossing to get the gliadins and things out of it? Ideally, we would be able to find gliadins. And that's the main cause of celiac disease reactivity in wheat is the gliadin protein. So if you look at the, uh, the functionality of those proteins, not a biological function, but a physical functionality of making a dough, the gliadin um, proteins, they're monomers. They don't form long, large webs. And so uh, um, the, the reactivity of those is not related to their function as a dough. And so being able to identify gliadin proteins that did not contain the reactive, you know, epitopes um, is possible. I, I do believe it's possible to find those. Um, and I don't believe that they would have any less, uh, you know, dough-forming ability um, than the gliadins that have reactive epitopes. It's just uh, they're, uh, they're there. They, they, they allow for some viscosity. Um, so a dough, they call it a viscoelastic uh, dough, and so the glutenin, the large high molecular weight glutenin provides some elasticity of the dough, and the gliadin proteins uh, provide some viscous flow. Um, and so being able to identify gliadins without the reactive epitopes is possible. Breeding varieties that have more of those low reactive gliadins than reactive gliadins is possible. So I think um, it's just a matter of identifying lines that are are lower in reactivity. Yeah, and so cool. just to clarify for the uh, for the, the listener, when we're talking about the epitope, it's actually the sequence of the protein. So the protein is made up of amino acids, and those amino acids form a very discrete signature on the surface of that protein that uh, could trigger um, an immune response. So this is the actual uh, sequence or the actual structure which um, interacts with uh, the uh, the uh, immune system or triggers the immune the immune response and that's an awful way to state it but it gives a rough idea yeah and the two proteins yeah. we're talking about are uh, glutenin and uh, gilladin and those two proteins are the two principal ones that are involved in in uh, eliciting the uh, response that's right and it's it's interesting so the um, the epitope it's a fragment of the protein that that's basically left behind after digestion so um, these wheat storage proteins are um, unique in a way. They're 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 very rich in a in a specific amino acid called proline. And whenever you have proline incorporated into um, a protein, your your uh, proteases or the digestive enzymes in your in your body um, they don't they don't like to break the protein down um, anywhere near these proline amino acids. And so that's one thing that leads to a little bit of a poor digestibility and these remaining fragments after after you eat you know wheat 
uh, proteins. But it, it's interesting, um, nobody really is, is able to digest these very well. So even you or I, uh, when we eat you know, wheat bread or uh, you know, have wheat proteins, um, nobody is really able to, to, to fully digest the protein. Um, the, the problem is that in some people, those fragments that are left behind um, yeah, they triggered this autoimmune response that causes some, you know, gastro gastrointestinal problems and a whole range of symptoms um, known as celiac disease. And I was curious whether you guys are also working on rye and barley, which also have some of the secolins and hordines that the celiac individuals need to avoid. Yeah, we aren't doing anything with rye or barley. Um, I I agree, and there's other there's other. Uh, all plant storage proteins are you know, evolutionary, kind of similar in some ways, and so uh, you see some some proteins in other grains that are they're really similar to the to these known you know sequences of, of reactive epitopes. But yeah, we're not doing anything in rye or barley. But yeah, definitely the same approach would work. You could easily have a celiac safe barley. Uh, I think the brewing industry would be uh, really excited to see that. And I guess there's been some uh, work that at least I've seen over the over the last few years where people have used RNAi approaches to suppress um, the uh, glutenins and gelatins in wheat, and it's worked pretty well. And um, the bread still has decent structure, but this would be probably suppressing the entire protein. So, uh, what are the strengths and limitations of those studies and those approaches to a durable change in wheat? Yeah, so I mean the RNAi approach. Um, the, there's other groups that have worked on like uh, deletion mutants that have they're missing like the long arm of one of the chromosomes that, that codes for most of the uh, uh, gliadin proteins. They have actually coded in a big gene block. There's a couple hundred genes um, all in a you know kind of a single segment, and so they have deletion mutants where they delete those out. Um, and really, the plant has Kind of some backup, you know, mechanism to they over, you know, if you remove the gliadin, which is just a storage protein, has no real biological function for the plant other than to provide nutrition for the for the uh, germinating seed, and so the plant replaces that with something else. So the plant knows that it needs a certain amount of protein um, deposited in the endosperm of the seed for that seed, you know, for propagation in the next generation. And so it just comes back with some other protein, uh, overexpresses something else. Um, um, and you're right, the quality, the baking quality of those lines is not terrible. I mean, with some work, I, I'm, I'm positive you can get those lines to be uh, you know, high performing. And, and that's really the trick is how do you make the edits and relieve the sensitivity to the wheat allergens at the same time keep its uh, quality for its applications in food and so that's really uh, that's where we need to be so with that idea let's take a break uh, thank you very much to Chris Miller uh, talking about how we can knock down the sensitivity of wheat in these products we'll be right back after this short message hello everybody Now, you might have noticed that the Talking Biotech podcast frequently incorporates guest hosts. The goal here is to expose those interested in science communication to a wider audience and maybe provide a friendly entrance to how to actually engage the public in a meaningful way. 
Now, it's always hard to take that first step, but I'm glad to offer this platform for you to tell your story and work with me in discussing new technologies with people that created them or understand them well. So if you're interested in joining me as a co-host, send a note to Talking Biotech Podcast at gmail.com and let me know. We'll devise questions together. We'll find fun ways to make you part of the discussion. Heck, you do the whole damn thing. I'll just listen. Remember, science flows best when innovation moves to application, and, and that takes communication. If this vehicle can bring more voices to the discussion, it only amplifies my interest in sharing the beautiful stories of science and technology that can help people and help the planet. And a happy colon is the basis of a healthy planet, right? Uh, <laughs> you think of people who have uh, problems with digestion from wheat products, and being able to alleviate that opens such a wonderful world of different food options that uh, maybe not be available to them. So with that in mind, we're talking today about celiac-safe wheat, or at least uh, less reactive or non-reactive wheat. We have our guest, Dr. Chris Miller from Wheat Innovation Institute, and uh, Kevin Klatt, who brings his expertise as a graduate student studying who's studying uh, molecular nutrition and also um, very, very knowledgeable on, on diet. And uh, with that, go over to Kevin. So, Chris, what is the approach that you're taking in your laboratory to modify wheat? Yeah, so we're not doing any, we're not doing any modifications. Um, if I were going to do that, so today we're, we're actually just on a search and find miss, mission. So we're looking for epitopes. Uh, there's known epitopes, and we're trying to discover the unknown epitopes. The idea is if you can identify every reactive sequence in the wheat genome, then you could take a CRISPR-Cas9 approach to basically edit the edit those segments out um, and and have no reactivity. You have to identify all of the reactive epitopes to get to zero, um, and so that's a challenging thing. But yeah, um, a technology like CRISPR-Cas9 would be. Uh, beautiful for this type of application, and, and actually there are groups that have done this um, on a smaller scale, proof of concept, that you can edit out reactive epitopes um, from wheat um, using CRISPR-Cas9. So, yep, that would be how we would probably want to approach it, but we aren't currently doing any of that today. So, uh, Chris, could you maybe give us some hints about what uh, CRISPR-Cas9 is? What is that approach, just for the listener? Yeah, so the the CRISPR-Cas9 approach basically um, uses a system where you can uh, create a what's called a primer or a it's a little guide, a little license plate or a tag way to, to go in, um, seek out uh, an address or a specific place in the genome. And once you've identified, you, you give it the directions to the, to the very specific sequence of the genome where you want to... Um, want to do your work, then the, uh, the CRISPR-Cas9 system, um, you can either make deletions of those from that address, so you could delete the address, you could make additions, so you can add in some, some changes, um, and you can make some point mutations. So um, it's really just a way of very specifically targeting a very um, narrow region of the genome to either add or delete. Uh, basically, as simple as I can explain it, um, 
Well, no, the, and maybe I'll just fill in a f- couple points there. Is that the beauty of the CRISPR Cas9 system is that you're not adding any um, non-plant sequence necessarily. You're That's right. you're able to edit. It's like being able to go into um, go into uh, the book of Tom Sawyer and you know change a word around. Well, you know that was a really bad example. <laughs> <laughs> This is like one word that sticks out you that that people have discussed uh, editing in the, um, but in let's go backwards. It allows you to to go into any book of choice and change uh, a word or two. So going into the uh, Bible and removing every reference to whatever, you know, it's just a way of tweaking individual uh, elements inside DNA. So a good example here is that you're identifying the epitopes or the DNA sequences that so. The DNA sequence encodes the epitope. It encodes the protein sequence that causes the allergic reaction. So if you can change the DNA sequence a little bit, maybe um, disrupt those pro- proline tracks or the, the ones that seem to be problematic, this may alleviate those specific symptoms in, uh, in evoking an immune response in a celiac patient yet still leave the wheat amenable to its applications in food. So something like that. Yep, you're right. That's exactly right. And the interesting thing about these storage proteins is they're they're not under a, you know, a strong biological pressure for um, function in the plant because the plant has, there's no lethal effect. If a gliadin um, incorporates a bunch of prolines, it doesn't benefit the plant necessarily. It doesn't hurt the plant. The plant's not, you know. Um, having some negative selection against having these weird sequences because they're just a storage protein. They're meant to be digested by the plant. The plant actually has the proper digestive enzymes to break these things down. So uh, maybe that is the selection. Maybe the plant incorporated a bunch of uh, prolines because, you know, insects or natural pests were, uh, were not able to digest it, and so they would maybe shy away from eating plant seeds. Maybe that was the the natural benefit to having all of these proline amino acids incorporated. I'm not sure, but the plant can break it down, so there's no consequence. Um, as far as editing those those little fragments out, I think it also has no consequence to the plant. Who is the sort of a target audience of the population that this celiac safe wheat would be kind of marketed to? We've, we've talked about this a lot uh, within our groups, and, and really we believe celiac-safe wheat is for everybody, and, and, and maybe calling it celiac-safe is not the right thing. Uh, maybe it's a low-reactive wheat. Um, if you look at the total population um, that has active celiac disease, it's a small percentage of people, you know, maybe a, between a half percent and two percent of the population um, but if you look at the percent of the population that has a genetic predisposition for celiac disease, you're talking about 60% of the population. And so it's, uh, it's a question, why do certain people develop celiac disease later in life? Uh, um, and, and we haven't answered that question. I don't know that we fully understand what triggers um, somebody from being you know, able to eat wheat products their whole life. Um, and then suddenly they become symptomatic and they're celiac and they have to change their eating, um, their lifestyle or their eating patterns. And so we think that a, a low reactive wheat might be good for everybody in that it may prevent some of those people in the 60% um, from becoming symptomatic in their lifetime. It's possible that 
the overexposure to uh, to weeds. I mean, it's, there's a lot of different theories about why people are triggered into a celiac positive, you know, uh, condition. Uh, but we we think that the, that a low reactive wheat might keep some of those people from from becoming symptomatic. Um, getting to zero and having a wheat product um, that's safe for for active celiacs um, to have and be able to enjoy, you know, a biscuit or a slice of bread. That would be a dream. Getting to zero is difficult. You know that. So that's all we can hope for. Start lowering the reactivity um, with the hopes that someday getting to zero. When we talk about the symptoms, is are any of the symptoms like, you know, how peanuts, you know, you can have anaphylaxis. You can actually, people have died from exposure to peanuts. And is wheat protein like argyladin and glutenin, are they actually... Uh, that dangerous, or is it more discomfort, or what are the real severe ends of this? Yeah, so there's a range of there's a range of symptoms from upset stomach type of symptoms, bloating, gas, things like that. Um, but there's some some people with with a really serious affliction that will have malabsorption um, through the intestines. So it's an intestinal deal; they can't absorb nutrients from their food. Um, so it gets to be a very serious concern where n- none of the food that they eat um, is able to, to benefit them. So, I mean, you could, you could starve to death, basically, just from lack of nutrition. Um, so that would be the most extreme case. Somewhere in the middle would be just a massive discomfort and, you know, just really an unhappy, unhappy way of life. I do know people who are celiac, and I fall in that. 60%. So I'm a, I'm a current wheat and bread eater, and I enjoy it, and I know that my clock is ticking. So I, I'm a genetically predisposed um, to celiac disease. I hope to God I can figure out this, uh, this thing before I become symptomatic and um, never have to stop you know, change, you know, eating the way I eat um, in the diet that I have. Um, I don't know. I hope, I hope they can figure it out. Well, it is an interesting question that to be working for wheat innovation and, and have celiac sensitivity or, you know, wheat sensitivity would be kind of a, like the ultimate irony. And then being on a research team that's working on stopping it is kind of the, you know, kind of completes the circle. It's a really interesting uh, question and um, was excited to learn about what's happening there. Um, yeah, one of, my, one of my research collaborators is is uh, um, uh, she has the wheat allergy, um, so it's different from celiac disease, and I know that you've discussed some of these things. So she, she is actually allergic to, to wheat, and, and yeah, so we're kind of a strange duo here working on celiac-safe wheat, where we've got one allergic to wheat and one uh, potentially um, celiac. So it uh, it's, uh, provides a sense of urgency, I guess, for us. So on the topic of wheat allergy, Chris, is there any effort um, at your institution to target some of the other proteins that are allergenic to individuals and that are not celiac but have a wheat allergy? Yes, the answer is yes. And actually, it complicates the discussion, but we're actually we're studying wheat protein, um, everything. So wheat protein as it relates to in-product quality, wheat protein as it relates to allergies, wheat protein as it relates to celiac disease. So we, we're studying the wheat proteome and the metabolome, tying it back to genetics, and we're providing some novel traits for the wheat breeders to bring into the marketplace. So we hope to identify low-reactive wheat 
We hope to identify wheat that makes the best loaf of bread you've ever seen in your life. We hope to produce wheat that doesn't cause wheat allergy reactions. So when we talk about what we're doing here, it's really a full and deep characterization of wheat proteins as it relates to function in human health and nutrition. Um, so yes, the answer is yes. We are looking at at all of the um, wheat proteins. That's pretty cool because I could definitely see your products also helping us researchers kind of identify who is actually reacting to the wheat proteins. And then there's some concern that individuals also react to some of the fermentable carbohydrates. So I could see these products being used in research to kind of parse out what people are actually sensitive to. Yeah, absolutely. What kind of timeline are we looking at for these products to be available for people who um, have been waiting maybe years without having that piece of pizza? Yeah, unfortunately... If it we're in the early stages of the research, and so um, you know, developing a variety once you have the the wheat I, the parent lines identified, just getting a, a variety developed, um, you're looking at six years, seven years, maybe. Um, but we don't even have those parents identified yet, so um, you're really looking at ten years, probably. Yes. And then I imagine there's a bunch of follow-up clinical testing to ensure that it's truly hypoallergenic. That's that's a different study in itself. Um, we're we're hoping to verify lower, lowering reactivity, um, being you know actually slapping a label on the product and say this is safe. Go ahead and eat it. Um, I don't know if you're going to get a lot of people to sign up for that. I think our idea is we know if we can lower the reactivity of of wheat, we should do that. It's the right thing to do, um, and so that's what we're doing uh, to verify that this is celiac safe and that anybody with celiac disease um, that eats it should not have a reaction. That's a legal hurdle that I don't know um, anybody wants to get into it, sadly. Um, It's just really hard to verify zero. Yeah, and there's also some concern that I know there was a a recent study out the other year that some people with celiacs uh, have reactions to some of the proteins that are of similar structure in oats, but most of them don't. So it's sort of more of a spectrum disorder than we originally, uh, and it seems to be characterized as sometimes. One thing that we're missing is the human health side of things. We're not a medical school here. Kansas State is not a medical school. Um, And really to get to the heart of it, I think it's a human Study. I mean, you really need to understand the human reactivity piece of it, and identifying you know unknown epitopes requires somebody, an immunologist or somebody who understands the human immune system has access to um, patients and things like that. And so, I don't have access to these resources. And so, finding a collaborator that um, that could work on the human side would be amazing for for our work. So, what I can do. So, we've pooled together. Um, Right now in our study, we're looking at uh, we have a, what we call a diversity panel. So it's wheat lines that were um, that have been in uh, the wheat breeding program at Kansas State from the early 1900s all the way until present day um, wheat varieties. So the commercial varieties. So we have 50 lines of wheat that span 100 years of wheat breeding, and so we're trying to identify that question of uh, have we increased the reactivity of wheat over time due to breeding practices. We believe the answer to that is no, but it would be interesting to see over that time span whether we have some lower reactive wheat lines that 
that are back on the shelf, you know. Um, we're also looking at some of the wild relatives of wheat. So in our building, the Wheat Innovation Center, we have uh, um, the Wheat Genetics Resource Center, which is actually a university um, program. It's part of Kansas State, but it's a seed bank that houses um, a few thousand sessions of wheat wild relatives and kind of these kind of wheat land races. So we have a pool of lines out of the out of the uh, you know kind of these wild relatives that will also screen for reactivity to, to see you know if we could go back to the origin of wheat ten thousand years ago what what did that look like I think we have the, the genetic stocks to, to lower reactivity but having that medical partner uh, would be would be key for us. Could you do a free cookie day at a K State football game and give each section a different uh, cookie? And then watch with binoculars to see who runs for the exits. I don't know that that'll get IRB approval. Unfortunately, you know you you do run into people in your life that that have either self-diagnosed or have been medically diagnosed with celiac disease or some type of wheat sensitivity. My former postdoc has a daughter that if she comes in contact with wheat in her preschool, they made uh, Play-Doh. So, you know, just the stuff where you mix wheat and water and whatever, make a gluten ball. And just handling the small amount of flour in that dough ball uh, blew her eyes up and she had really, really severe reactions against wheat. I was thinking about um, the idea of if this were to be made, kind of who has the ownership rights to it. And all that's a, always a hot topic with these conversations. My research is funded... 100% by the Kansas Wheat Farmer. So uh, we have grants from the Kansas Wheat Commission um, to, to do this study. And we're partnering with uh, researchers at Kansas State, obviously, in the wheat breeding program. We have some industry partners who are, who are helping us kind of silently. And uh, the work is all being done at the Kansas Wheat Innovation Center. So this is a brand new facility. Uh, it was built three years ago, fully funded by the Kansas Wheat Farmer. Um, it houses the Kansas Wheat Commission offices and our corporate offices and research laboratories, greenhouses uh, for Heartland Plant Innovations. But yeah, this work is is solely funded by the Kansas Wheat Farmer. And your facility has a gorgeous test kitchen too. That's pretty pretty remarkable. It's amazing. It, it's just the uh, it's the wonderland. I, I love being here. It's amazing. We have state of the art laboratories, fully equipped. We have growth chambers and greenhouses and everything that you could ever want as a wheat researcher, protein biochemist, um, we have kind of at our fingertips. So it's a, it's a great place to be. Um, I think there's a lot of good things that are still coming um, down the road and potential collaborations um, are, you know, endless, I guess. Have you guys ever chatted with any food scientists? I've seen some literature out there that looks at pre-treating wheat with, uh, or like the before cooking it with a bunch of probiotic mixtures to kind of cleave all of these epitopes via bacteria. It sounds like there'd be some interesting potential for you guys to work with them. Yeah, we haven't actively worked with any food scientists, but you're right. Um, so there is an approach where they've created a transgenic wheat that um, that contains a protease from a bacteria. Um, this is the, uh, it's a lactobacillus, it's a, the yogurt, you know, the, uh, the uh, bacteria that's responsible for, for yogurt. And, and they have, uh, these bacteria have a remarkable ability to, 
to digest proline, this amino acid that's really kind of not easily digested. And so the uh, protease from the bacteria was transgenically, you know, uh, you know, inserted into wheat and it's supposed to pre-digest. It's kind of amino. Well, it's, it's supposed to, you know, break down these, these uh, poorly digested proteins, leaving no reactive epitopes um, for the patient to have reactions against. So the problem with that approach is that even if it works, which I think is, is working, I believe it's working, but it's a GMO trait that is never going to come to market in the near future. So from, our, from my perspective, I would rather work on something using you know traditional breeding that we can actually get into the market and get in people's hands than to have a GMO solution necessarily that sits on the shelf um, tied up in regulation. So, I mean, I think the day is coming. I mean, we, we would love for the regulations to allow us to, to do this work quickly and efficiently and precisely using, you know, modern sound science, you know. Uh, uh, we, just, we just can't. It's too bad. Yeah, it's a shame. And so that's that's really a, uh, a a common theme here on the on the Talking Biotech podcast is kind of sensing the frustration of researchers who have really dedicated their lives to solving a problem for people, yet uh, kind of throw their hands up in the air when you see the uh, red tape gauntlet that you'd end up going through, and then the uh, public pushback and lack of acceptance. And it could be something that really could make life better for people with these types of afflictions or potentially save a life of somebody with severe allergies. So it really is too bad that we can't make these things go faster. And these are the, these are the kind of technologies that make me wish the nutrition community would get more involved in a positive way regarding genetically engineered organisms because this has such potential to help out our patients and the people that we're talking with. So, Dr. Chris Miller, thank you very much for spending the time talking to us today on Talking Biotech. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and Kevin Klatt, thanks a lot. I really appreciate your uh, expertise and thoughts in this process and hope to have you on again. Happy to be here. Thanks, Kevin. And that brings to a close number 32 of the Talking Biotech podcast series. And thank you very much to Dr. Chris Miller and Kevin Klatt for joining me today on today's podcast. And uh, thank you for listening. Uh, It's really important that we understand how issues like wheat and wheat sensitivity just come from molecules that irritate the human condition and that we can use technology to suppress those molecules in ways that helps us achieve a healthier food that's safer. And uh, that's a good thing. And this is just another example of how these kinds of technologies can help people and help people solve very real human problems. So thank you very much for listening. Um, Think again about those who uh, we may be able to serve with technology, the folks who uh, all over the world um, are suffering from malnutrition and can benefit from technologies if we share those scientific stories. And uh, remember always that we do stand on the shoulders of giants. I haven't said that in a while, and it, it certainly is something we should reflect on every day is the, uh, the fact that the science comes from so much innovation over so many careers that really allow us to be able to begin to think to employ these technologies. And um, our opportunity to simply tell those stories and communicate it, we got the easy job. So think about ways you can get out there and talk about science and talk about technology, even if it's with friends or in a small group or whatever you have. 
uh, take those opportunities to share the stories that others have built. We have the easy job of being that simple communications conduit. Thank you so much for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.